me his hunger. Yes. Again? <laughs> I can't believe anybody ever took this seriously. Yes. <laughs> were they taking it seriously? <laughs> I camp, right? I, dude, yes. I swear to God, I swear they were. Alright. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Ellen Foley. Ruined her. This is hell. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell, and this time, the end of the world we may be facing is the end of whatever democracy we still have here in the United States, which ain't much considering our conversation yesterday with Carrie Lee Merritt on what the pandemic revealed about the lack of real, actual democracy in the U.S., the brutal killing of Tyree Nichols by a special Memphis police force revealed not only that there's a crisis of democracy in the United States, it also showed us that the Pentagon-funded militarized special forces within police departments across the cr- country are growing more deadly and imposing a far better armed police state upon all of us. In a few minutes, we will speak with scholar, educator, ethnographer, human rights activist, sociologist, artist and award-winning writer Dr. Michael Gold Wartofsky, who wrote the Tom Dispatch article, Welcome to the Predator State, where the scorpions on the corner just might kill you, which is about the killing of Tyree Nichols by a Memphis police unit called Scorpion. Michael is a scholar of the far right and left, race and class, policing and protest. His research investigates the intersections of state power and social movements and the politics and policing of immigration. He is the author of the 2015 book, The Occupiers, The Making of the 99% Movement. His new book, No Sanctuary, Mass Deportation, and The Unmaking of the Sanctuary City, 1980-2020, is forthcoming. He's also currently working on a book on fascism and anti-fascism in the United States. Michael has received Harvard's James Gordon Bennett Prize, the New York Times' James B. Reston Award, and the Alfred R. Lindsmith Paper Award from the Society for the Study of Social Problems. I forgot to start my timer. Find out more about Michael at mgouldwartofsky.com. Follow Michael on Twitter at mgouldwartofsky. Who knew that you playing meatloaf at the beginning would throw me off and forget? I shattered your psyche with the rock. <laughs> you did, and I forgot to start my timer. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is fan favorite, listener favorite, Dan Hill. Boy, you're getting a lot of compliments on Discord. Dan, what's That's new right. by you, Burning sir? Burning up the charts Yes, you Discord. are. Yeah. I'm a little down about my friend Alvin. I've been helping him out for the, like the last six months. I met him at jail support, uh-huh. and he's just he can't catch a break. Um, he's over there in Hillside. I've been sending him money for a long time. I've sent him hundreds of dollars, and it's like when it's in your pocket, you know. Now it's like it's it's stressful, and he's he's asking for money for food. I give him food twice in the day, and then it's like. Uh, and then he needs uh, a ride home from the food. And it's like, I've given you enough money. My life is in shambles. I can't do it today. Um, so it's a little stressful. If you're over there in, in the UK listening on Beware, and if you have access to things like the Tube and the National Health Service, maybe give a thought 
or maybe a couple a couple uh, pounds to to my friend Alvin, which it could be hit up at Cash App nine 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 T Y B, and uh, just thank your stars that you don't have to deal with this stuff. Cash App nine 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 T Y B. Yeah, T is in toy, Y is in Yosarian, B is in Basilicus. <laughs> I see; those are easy to remember. Yeah. So Cash App 999-TYB if you want to help out uh, Dan's friend Alvin. Alvin, yeah, yeah, he needs it real bad. That's a drag, man. That's really a drag. You know, you know when you're, you're going through your own stuff, yeah, you know, yeah, and then yeah. you have to, uh, you're trying to help out other people who don't realize you're going through your own stuff because yeah. it seems minuscule compared well, to what they're going the through, thing. you know? It's like he made me through, I think he thinks I'm sort of, some sort of wizard. He's like sending me like uh, screenshots. He's like, this is for your... Uh, this is for when you need to submit your your reimbursement. I'm like, dog, I'm just a guy. When I, I send him hundreds of dollars, and apparently he's, he's under the impression that I'm some sort of like charity or organization. That you're getting reimbursed for no, the money. No, I'm just a human being, my friend. You're right. Know, like, so, wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, so the best of luck to you. Cash app yeah. 999-TYB. Yeah, help we, out Dan's friend, Alvin. Yeah. Thank you, man. Uh, so uh, please remind us, Dan, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is simply this. How do you identify yourself? How do you identify yourself? Papirin bitter. <laughs> so the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. There's the This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Will you see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. And probably this weekend, maybe within the next couple of weeks, we will be revealing some new merch that we have come up with uh, our great friends who take care of all of our merchandise. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to... This is Hell Radio at gmail.com only during the final hour of this week's show, as we rarely don't rarely check that email address otherwise. Usually we tell people just to send it to Chuck at this is hell.com, but as we are wrapping up this week's show and we're here in studio, try this is hell radio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Dan, what's Jeff's doing? What is Jeff doing on this week's Moment of Truth? Well, this week, Jeff wants to conquer the world with a philosophy of radical underachievement. I like that. Yeah, it's not bad. It's better than reactionary underachievement. That... I can't really picture what that would look like. <laughs> yeah, they, they seem to be achieving quite a lot lately. Yeah, like a high-key slacker, yeah. <laughs> the Coming up, the state of our milita- militarized police state in the United States. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. And believe it or not, on Patreon this week, I am going to be talking about hope and happiness. Doesn't really make sense when you're working on a show called This Is Hell. It's kind of hard to have a lot of hope and a lot of happiness. But I realized this week that there are people in much worse positions than I am who have hope and remind themselves when they are happy which is a good thing to do. I did it yesterday, and I felt a lot better. 
Jeff Dorchum will be delivering his moment of truth, of course, and we will tell you what's happening next week here on This Is Hell. We actually have somebody booked for a couple of weeks from now as well, but we'll be sharing that for our Patreon patrons later this week. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. And the crime that is apparently being legally committed by the police in the United States is the crime of, well, murdering unarmed citizens, often citizens of color, with increasingly brutal and deadly force done by specialized, militarized police forces supported by the military-industrial complex. Oh, that's incredibly frightening. Here to help us have a better understanding of the Memphis police killing of Tyree Nichols by a special crime unit, which is very much like special crime units that have been popping up around the country since the militarization of the cops beginning in the 1990s, our guest is... Scholar, educator, ethnographer, human rights activist, sociologist, artist, and award-winning writer Dr. Michael Gould-Wartofsky, who wrote the Tom Dispatch article, Welcome to the Predator State, where the scorpions on the corner just might kill you. Welcome to This Is Hell, Michael. Hi, thanks, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for reaching out to us. I really appreciate it because this is absolutely stunning work. And I think it's a point that some people have touched on, but I think you went into it in more depth than I've seen other, uh, elsewhere. You write that two residents of Memphis's resource-poor, predominantly non-white neighborhoods, the Scorpions, were easy to spot. The plainclothes patrols were known for driving their unmarked Dodge Chargers through the street, often all too recklessly, sowing fear as they went, spitting venom from their windows, jumping out with guns drawn at the slightest sign of an infraction. So they're in plain clothes, yet they're driving Dodge Chargers, which are going to stick out because you know that they're going to be well-maintained. They're probably going to shine, just like every police car does. What's the point of being in plain clothes in a car that is readily recognizable? When I moved here to Chicago, I was standing out on the Wilson L platform, and this kid who couldn't have been more than 14, 15 years old, he leans over to me and he said, hey, did you ever notice that every unmarked cop car, their license plates start with an M, and then the second thing on it is a number? Everybody knew it in Chicago. You could spot an unmarked police car everywhere. So what's the point of being in plain clothes in these Dodge Chargers that are easily recognizable? Yeah, that's, um, I mean, first of all, that's that's one of the, the contradictions um, in, in this uh, model of policing where you have, um, you know, a, a public-facing narrative that that says these are basically essential workers we need them to be safe um and yet they're they're in uh basically marked cars um unmarked uniforms and and basically plain clothes paramilitaries rolling through the streets of america you know ready to jump out uh, they're called the jump out boys in some towns ready to jump out with their guns drawn um and there there is a there's a basic contradiction in in you know the what the kind of public face of these so-called elite police units is, and what the reality is of of their interactions, and it doesn't really make any sense from um, even from a, a, a law perspective. It doesn't make any sense. So you uh, give a pretty a really good and sad description of what happened with Tyree Nichols, just so people know and remember. You write that on the night of January seventh, Tyree Nichols was two minutes from home when members of that Scorpion squad pulled him over, probable cause, reckless driving, if you believe the official story. Five Scorpions, 
All of them trained use of force specialists proceeded to take turns hitting him with everything they had, including boots, fists, and telescopic batons. The 29-year-old photographer died three days later. Cause of death, excessive bleeding due to severe beating. A body cam snuff film of sorts was later released, showing some of Nichols' last moments. The video transcripts speak for themselves. You then transcribe the video with Tyree begging them to stop, saying he did nothing wrong, while the police yell at him, saying things like, you're going to get your ass blown off, and, uh, oh, I'm going to knock you your ass the F off. Watch out. I'm going to baton the F out of you. Dude, hit him, hit him, as Tyree begs for his life and screams for his mom. The police must have known that with today's technology and its ubiquitous nature, even if they had body cam cameras on and they had turned them off, that this would be captured somehow on video and likely audio and that they would be held accountable. What does a deadly event like this happening, a murder, reveal to you about the perceived and believed impunity that police think they still have in an area of video surveillance devices on streets across the United States and in the pockets and hands of nearly everyone, and even all these you know, doorbell cams that everybody has. Why, despite this technology being seemingly everywhere, would police still engage in this deadly force against an unarmed African-American man? What does that reveal to you about the police, and especially the Scorpions unit, when you, they should have absolutely known this is on video. Video is now, video surveillance is everywhere, if you like it or not. That's right. And and they believed they could get away with it. Um, the body cams have not changed that basic underlying belief. And, you know, if you uh, if you look at uh, police departments across the country, um, you know, as a whole, uh, the rate of killing is actually going up. It's not just continuing to happen. Um, it's going up. And there was there were record record numbers of, of deaths over the past two years. Um, some 30,000 people, over 30,000 people, according to a study in the British Medical Journal, The Lancet, uh, have been killed by law enforcement um, over the last, over recent decades. Um, so, so this bloody harvest of police violence is, is justified um, in, in legal terms by a doctrine called qualified immunity, uh, which means that uh, it basically translates into a kind of impunity for police killing because in order to convict uh, a police officer in in uh, an unlawful death um, or or a criminal suit um, you have to you have to somehow prove that uh, that they didn't that that what they did um, you know the, the burden of proof is on the prosecution or on on the the, uh, the people bringing the lawsuit uh, to show that the police believed they were violating the uh, the civil rights and and uh, the basic uh, liberties of the individual. Um, they had to believe that uh, they were acting in the wrong. That's a ridiculous burden of proof. They they if they believed that they were in the right, no matter what the actions were, what the behavior was that resulted in the death of a U.S. citizen or non-citizen. Um, that is that is the basic level of. Um, that the threshold that has to be met in order for an officer to be convicted. Um, so, you know, while these murder charges were um, somewhat exceptional and and rather extraordinary, um, they they are they often don't stick um, for that reason. And it's unlikely that they're going to stick in this case either. There's 
a basic underlying impunity in America for uh, those who wear the uniform and engage in extrajudicial assassination, let's call it what it is. This is um, a police unit operating as a death squad. So do you think that this exceptional nature of them actually being charged with uh, murder, even though, as you point out, it's likely that they will not actually be convicted of murder because of impunity, do you think that we are going to be seeing a rollback of that impunity for police? And if that did happen, as the right argues, this would then lead to the police, nobody wanting to be a police officer and crime running rampant. Do you think that we are going to see a decrease in the impunity that is given to police? And what impact do you think that that might have on crime? That's a good question, Chuck. Um, I think all of that kind of depends on uh, what happens next. So uh, if you take another case, uh, Tyree Nichols is, is, uh, one case that is deservedly getting uh, all of all of the attention right now. But in addition, there was the killing of Manuel Teran, uh, also known as Tortuguita, in the Atlanta forest. Um, he's an environmentalist. They were environmentalist activists, um, and they were um, executed, essentially executed in, in cold blood. The autopsy that was released this week showed they had their hands up uh, when they were killed, and they were... Um, um, killed with 13 shots uh, and there was some crossfire in which an officer was also injured. Um, so this this killing was done by a counterterrorism task force. Um, the the killing in, in uh, Memphis was was done by the Scorpion unit, but whatever you call them, whether it's uh, counterterrorism task force, the Scorpion unit, uh, the Red Dogs as as the special ops unit in Atlanta used to be called, um, you know, or, or your own uh, Bureau of Counterterrorism and Special Operations, um, you have, you know, in Chicago, you have uh, this, this level of impunity that can only be challenged effectively um, by mass protest and by, by civil resistance. Um, and that is something that we've seen um, actually get results uh, in, in, there have been several studies of the cities where uh, large protests occurred and there was a, a diminishing uh, rate of killing in some of the cities. Um, there was a correlation found there. So um, there can be, you know, there can be effective protests around this. And um, I think since 2014, when I first started writing about the militarization of the police, there has been a great deal of pushback to the point that the 1033 program was even rolled back for a time, was brought back under President Trump and has been maintained under President Biden. So, um, you know, I think there's, there is a, a precedent for protests having an effect. I think that is uh, uh, the George Floyd uprising was also uh, a wave of protest that has had an effect. And um, you can see that in, in these murder charges. I think they are indicative um, of, of a fundamental crisis of legitimacy that this police state is facing. And, um, you know, the impunity might diminish uh, to the extent that civil society uh, steps up and says this is not going to be tolerated anymore. We're going to have a zero tolerance policy. Uh, for these these uh, war on crime crimes, they're they're crimes um, that would be considered war crimes if they were in any other country in the world, uh, but they're happening on U.S. soil. As to questions of of uh, crime as a whole, uh, there have been uh, dozens of studies, at least, uh, showing that the um, the rate of crime is completely disconnected uh, or or non correlated 
uh, with the uh, rates of police investment, investments in police and in police weaponry. Um, there is no correlation. And the, uh, the crime rates um, that you know, rose rather precipitously uh, in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic have fallen significantly since then um, without, uh, you know, in, in, against the background of, of a lower level of police recruitment, against the background of um, some police budget cuts. So um, crime hasn't risen precipitously. Um, in fact, it has gone down um, in many cities across the country. Um, and that is that is not correlated in any way with um, um, with you know police uh, getting more weapons or or or, or getting uh, more uh, immunity for what they do. Um, it's correlated with uh, there being dense civil society organization and dense um, voluntary associations where people have uh, you know informal social controls. That don't depend on the police in order to to ensure that people are safe in their neighborhoods um, and safe in their in their communities. You mentioned the 1033 program. That's the program of the Pentagon uh, arming local police, correct? That's correct. Um, sorry that that is the the program that you were referring to that dates back to the 90s. Okay, I just wanted to follow up on that real quick. But uh, so let me ask you a question, just following up on what you were talking about about the effectiveness of these uh, police pro- the protests against police brutality. We've talked about this since the beginning of our show. I mean, you can go back 20 years. Last month, 20 years ago, were the largest protests in world history trying to stop the invasion and occupation of in the war in Iraq. So those failed. The largest protests in human history failed to stop a war. Why do you think these protests against police brutality are relatively effective? Well, for one thing, um, not every administration is the George W. Bush administration, um, but I think for the most part, they they are modeled, um, you know, at the at the level of policing, at least they're modeled on these uh, counterinsurgency campaigns around the world. Um, Iraq uh, being one of the most notorious for its brutality, um, and you have seen um, a kind of uh, effectiveness that the anti-war movement did have, although it was not able to stop. The war in Iraq, you know, there is an argument to be made that militarization as a whole um, would not be facing the the crisis of legitimacy that it has were it not for the anti-war movement, um, you know, and and that was a movement that I think um, generated a lot of a lot of other um, offshoots, some of which you know went on to confront predatory policing and militarized policing um, domestically and saw some of the ways in which the wars came home. Uh, from Iraq and from Afghanistan and from other places uh, where, you know, U.S. empire was defended at the point of a gun. So and back in 2008, we were speaking with the historian Alfred McCoy, and he warned us about the war on terror coming home. He said that any time you see an action taken by the military overseas, U.S. military overseas, you can bet that that same action to a certain degree will be employed against American citizens back home. What he was concerned about at that time was how are these, that was the drone technology that the U.S. basically was the only country in the world that had a really good drone technology at the time. He was like, how is this, how are these drones going to be used against the people here in the United States? 
is what is happening with the police here in the U.S. today. Is that an example of what the military does overseas to perceived enemies uh, who, uh, you know, eventually turned against U.S. citizens at home, even potentially by the same people who used the same tactics overseas in the war on terror? What, what does it mean when you have a police that looks at the people of the United States, looks at every one of them as if they are still engaged in a war on terror and that everybody in the United States is a potential terrorist. Yeah, you know, I think um, there has been this feedback loop and, and this kind of blowback, um, which is is not talked about as much as, as some other kinds of blowback, but is, is very real. Um, and you look at the, let's say, you know, the Memphis Police Department. The Memphis Police Department managed to obtain a stockpile of high-powered rifles, armored personnel carriers. Um, the state of Tennessee has gotten $131 million worth of weaponry uh, from the Pentagon, um, just the state of Tennessee alone, uh, in which you know Memphis is located. Um, in terms of the drone technology, you know, drones have been used on protesters. I've, I've seen it with my own eyes. I live in New York City, where the strategic response group is, is the latest instance of um, this kind of blowback. And um, you see drones deployed uh, to for surveillance purposes. Uh, you see uh, sonic warfare deployed against protesters, wave warfare, as they call it, um, less lethal ammunition uh, and less lethal uh, uh, munitions, uh, chemical munitions that would be illegal on the battlefield in a foreign country, but are illegal for deployment again domestically. Um, and so you see uh, robots as well. Um, the, the San Francisco Police Department has a special operations bureau, uh, which has procured unmanned, remotely piloted uh, robots with lethal uh, capacity with names like Talon and Dragon Runner. Um, and these are, these are also profitable ventures for the private sector, uh, for the tech sector. Uh, so a lot of this uh, is coming home in a, in a literal way in terms of the weaponry uh, that was developed for use overseas on America's distant battlefields. Um, but it's also, you know, it's also seen in the subculture and in the ideology um, and in the strategy that's deployed against um, U.S. Uh, civilians domestically in a way that uh, is, is imported directly from uh, the Army Special Operations Units, from um, you know, from the Marines in Iraq, from uh, some of these war zones. And, you know, you see some of the same people, uh, unfortunately. Uh, I saw uh, one statistic that approximately 30% of law enforcement is ex-military. Um, and so the militarization of police is, is essentially um, complete, but still vulnerable to challenge from below. So in the war on terror, Iraqis, Afghans, and people in, in those countries, uh, living in those countries where America has gone to war, have reported loud drones hovering over them all day and night, 24-7, 365, and how they live with the understanding that at any moment, for any reason, those drones might attack. With the war on terror coming home, then, are economically challenged neighborhoods and the people of color who live in them, are they going to be subject to constant drone surveillance, which at any moment could turn violent without any warning? Yeah, I think we've, we see the technical capacity for that. Um, you know, the, there's been a lot of investments in, in innovations and uh, in drone surveillance. 
Um, and, you know, there are some ways in which that um, that's been automated with uh, this model of predictive policing, where they're trying to predict where crimes are going to happen next, not even basing their deployment on, um, you know, what's happening, what's actually happening. It's, it's uh, deploying technology such as drone technology on the basis of um, the assumption that we can predict who is going to commit the crime, where they're going to commit it, what the hot spots are, as they call them, um, another term imported from war zones. So um, I think you see, you know, the real potential for certain parts of the United States to begin to resemble uh, some of these war zones overseas where people are have been living in terror for decades now, uh, for, for more than two decades. Um, of these kinds of technologies uh, being deployed against them and their families. So I think, you know, there's a risk of that. Um, it is, we're, we're on the precipice. Um, there's an explosion in um, investment in this kind of thing and in also machine learning and artificial intelligence that would, um, you know, at least partially automate the process of policing, um, which, you know, is, is, is facing a crisis uh, right now in terms of recruitment. So, you know, replacing uh, police uh, work with, uh, with um, you know, robotic or, or, or with drone work, uh, workers, you know, that don't have to be uh, recruited and paid um, is another option. That's another possibility on the table. So I think um, that's, it's something that's been effectively challenged at the local level predictive policing was taken off the table and the company Palantir uh, had its contracts severed in Los Angeles after uh, a campaign there. Um, there's a campaign to disband the strategic response group, which is the unit that uses um, these, these drone technologies um, to, uh, to against uh, civilian protests, against um, anti-police protests in New York City, for example. Um, and you see a lot of pushback all across the country um, you know, so I think there's a potential to uh, to dial it back, um, but the risk is very real. So, when in these hotspots, what kind of crimes make you a hotspot? Is it only violent crime, or is it any crime? Can petty property crime lead to an area becoming a hotspot and targeted by police who are more prepared to use force? Because, as we know. Policing is enforced unequally. I can sit on my front stoop and drink a beer and smoke a cigarette and throw that cigarette out onto the sidewalk. Nothing's going to happen to me. That's not the same thing in areas that are majority-minority neighborhoods, especially areas that are majority African-American. People will be arrested for drinking in public and for littering. That happens on a regular basis. Is that kind of crime included in hot spot crime uh, policing, or is it just about violent crime and not property or this kind of petty crime? So, um, you know, if you believe the PR that uh, came along with the so-called police science uh, that, um, you know, that, that hot spot policing originated in, um, and it actually originated in Minneapolis and, and, um, Hotspot policing was in many ways uh, responsible for the death of George Floyd there. Um, but 30 years ago, there was there were these experiments, these experiments on people, um, you know, with with control group and, and an experimental group where they, they said, OK, let's look at um, if we deploy these units uh, to um, to areas with elevated levels of crime as we measure it. Um, and that's including nonviolent crime, including all kinds of offenses. Um, 
you know, uh, throwing a cigarette butt out um, may have been one of them or, or you know, um, sitting on your stoop and, and drinking a beer may have been one of them. Um, and that was then exported from Minneapolis around the country um, to police departments around the country uh, with the, their, their justification was often based on violent crime. Um, you know, and violence is, is a real uh, is a real challenge in, in our lives, um, but it has not been addressed in any way effectively by hotspot policing because hotspot policing um, is basically based on, on the metrics of how a police officer sees the world. What is threatening? What is what is what is uh, what is a risk? What is a stranger or strange character who needs to be, um, you know, stopped, search and frisked? What is what is somebody who who looks like a criminal? What is a neighborhood that you know where the the statistics suggest um, there is a high level of property crime? How are you going to um, approach that neighborhood? Uh, well, swarm it with uh, a bunch of heavily armed strangers. That's going to help. So, so that's that's basically the logic here. It's not very complicated um, to see, you know, why it wouldn't work and and why hotspot policing actually coincided with one of the highest, um, some of the highest crime rates in America over the past thirty years, um, and there's been no correlation with a reduced crime rate. Um, it's basically been, been about going after um, the people that uh, you would have previously gone after um, on the basis of the color of their skin where you now need what's called a pretext stop in order to do it, but you're doing the same thing. So you're in New York. I'm pretty sure that you're familiar with a website publication called City Journal, a conservative uh, New York uh, outlet. Do you know about that? I'm familiar, yeah. All right, so keep that in mind because you're going to hate this question. You write that like the officers in the South Bronx who gunned down Amadou Diallo in 1999 outside his home as he reached for his wallet, the ones in 2006 in Queens who sprayed Sean Bell with 50 bullets on his wedding day, and the ones in Brooklyn who opened up fire on a mentally ill man named Saheed Vassell in 2018, those responsible for Eric Garner's 2014 murder for selling Lucy's, were members of the infamous anti-crime units in New York City whose work would become a blueprint for Scorpion-style policing. So shortly after Sean Bell's killing by police, a publication, as I was just mentioning, called City Journal, ran an opinion piece by someone named Heather McDonald arguing that the police did not kill Bell. That was the headline in one of the first sentences of her article, and that the killing being racially motivated was preposterous. However, McDonald states that Yes, the police did, in fact, shoot Bell 50 times and that he and the men he was with were all unarmed. But McDonald claims the killing was justified as Bell had been arrested in the past on a gun charge and he was in an area of high crime in Queens and the strip club he had just exited was a known place for drug crimes. The real killer of the men were, according to McDonald, the fact that minorities kill each other at a higher rate than whites, that police killings are rare and they save li- and the police save lives every day so they should be supported even if they every so often kill an unarmed civilian of color, that minority witnesses of crimes do not help police by reporting crime, that police make mistakes and sometimes those mistakes can be deadly, that police actions are not racially motivated and the reason police kill minorities is because... Minorities live in high crime areas, and we can rest assured that the New York Police Department and the criminal justice system will investigate every police shooting with profound seriousness. They will not rest until the facts are uncovered 
and justice is done. That's what her claims are. So let's just ask in a broader scope here, Michael, in your opinion, what role do these circumstances within which policing, within which police work dictate their deadly actions? Is it the circumstances that cause their deadliness, as McDonald claims? Well, look, police work by, according to to every study, um, is um, one of the less dangerous occupations um, among among manual, you know, among occupations that require work with one's hands. Um, you know, if the work that you do with your hands is is potentially lethal work, and you give officers all of these weapons, um, not just their service, uh, you know, weapons of 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 traditional uh, nature like a like a sidearm, but you know, all of these weapons, they're going to use them. Um, and they're they're supposed to use them. These are not mistakes. These are these are um, systematic and and uh, they're based on training. These were use of force specialists in the case of Tyree Nichols, um, as they call them. They were use of force specialists in the case of Amadou Diallo, who was reaching for his wallet at his own doorstep uh, when he was gunned down um, those years ago. Uh, Sean Bell with fifty shots, at, you know, at, on his wedding day. Um, to say that um some some structural um issues are responsible for uh for police killings is is actually a, a, that that would be true the structural issues uh, that uh Heather McDonald was talking about um you know are are essentially um structural issues with the police themselves and with policing in America they're not they're not um it's not a, a function of of some abstract force that that you know, uh, forced these police officers to open fire on unarmed civilians in New York City or anywhere else, um, you know, in Chicago, anywhere else. It's it's a very specific set of decisions uh, informed by by a very specialized training. We're talking about self-titled elite police units, elite police units, such as uh, the street crimes unit uh, fancied itself in New York City. Um, or such as the Scorpion unit uh, was 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 called in in Memphis, um, and you see the circumstances uh, should should inform how we understand um, policing. But the circumstances surrounding policing are circumstances um, that constitute the basis for war crimes prosecutions and crimes against humanity prosecutions in other countries. So I think we should see, think seriously about um, you know what 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 kinds of circumstances we're paying attention to the fact that these are these um killings are happening in resource poor uh communities of color are not surprising at all um that's not because uh resource poor civilians of color uh are committing all the crimes uh that's because that's where police are committing the crimes so you also write that the force's predatory philosophy is often summed up in a single sentence lifted from Ernest Hemingway's 1936 satirical short story on the blue waters officers of the peace have been known to quote it quote it to wear it to work and to plaster it on the walls of their precincts the quote is there is no hunting like the hunting of man and those who have hunted armed men long enough and liked it never care for anything else thereafter assuming that the police want to have people not in their ranks of the police force who may pose the greatest danger to human life. How difficult would it be for the police to avoid hiring those who, as Hemingway said, 
have hunted armed men and enjoyed it. Well, you know, that that saying is also popular um, based on anecdotal evidence that I have from, um, you know, from family members who were in the military who told me that statement is also popular in the military. And um, you see a lot of overlap there, um, as I mentioned. Um, you know, it is difficult to 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 stop, um, you know, someone or or a group of people. In fact, we're talking about a movement because the white supremacist movement um, has made it a project to infiltrate police departments, um, sheriff's offices, law enforcement in general across the country. Um, you know, since since the early 2000s, that has been a strategy that has been known to law enforcement. Um, and we saw the fruits of that on January 6, 2021, um, as well as um, elsewhere since. And I think we have uh, we have a real crisis where, you know, there, there are no barriers to entry for uh, people who are looking to uh, for a license to kill. And this license to kill is coming from our own government. It's not coming from a uh, gang or cartel, um, at least not one uh, in the traditional sense. It's coming from our own government. We are speaking with award-winning writer Dr. Michael Goldwartowski, who wrote the Tom Dispatch article, Welcome to the Predator State, where the scorpions on the corner just might kill you. Find out more about Michael at mgoldwartowski.com and follow Michael on Twitter at mgoldwartowski. So you quote a nurse from Crown Heights in New York City who witnessed the 2018 killing of Saeed Vassell, saying the undercovers think they have the authority to do anything they want. They hunt people like us black people. They hunt us down. They act tough like they're from a gang, but they're only like that because they have a badge. Yet, as past guest Cerise Castle has uh, reported and uh, talked to us about on the show a couple of times, there have been gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department for decades. And those police and these police gangs, which act much like criminal gangs, even getting involved in crimes, including murder, are across the United States. I know they're here in Chicago, working openly within police departments with their own tattoos and their logo often emblazoned within break rooms and police stations. So to what extent have police just become another gang fighting a gang war but with military equipment and training what's and what's wrong with the police fighting fire with fire when it comes to fighting criminal gangs uh well uh it's it's hard to it's hard to actually fight fire with fire i hear um it's, it's like lifting uh, yourself up by your bootstraps it generally just doesn't work you know especially when you're, especially while you're fighting fire with fire that's just a disaster waiting to happen that's right. That's right. And and these are, you know, these are um, these are wildfires at this point. They are out of control. Um, you could say there's a, a method to their madness and there certainly is a methodology um, and a police science and police training. Um, and if you read the manuals, um, they will remind you at times of um, the training, the training, you know, you would imagine uh, a gang or a cartel would give its members um, in terms of, um, you know, the way you approach enemy combatants or the way you approach a rival gang. Um, and I think that, you know, this drives with the experience of, of many people in, um, you know, in, in urban uh, settings across the country, especially in resource poor, predominantly non-white neighborhoods, um, where, you know, not only is the police uh, force indistinguishable increasingly from 
um, from the military on the one hand in terms of its weaponry um, and in terms of its um, its militaristic uh, culture, but it is also perhaps indistinguishable, um, you know, from from the other uh, gangs in the neighborhood, uh, you know, in terms of its uh, approach to civilians and in terms of its um, the way in which the police force is uh, seen to value human life, specifically uh, black life and um, and indigenous life. So that's that's something that um, I think has come up uh, repeatedly, you know, in, in conversations I've had with people um, in New York City and across the country, including for my my next book that I'm working on. Um, and it's one that, you know, that doesn't know any um, any boundaries uh, at the moment and is really uh, a crisis that is running out of control. In terms of the hyper violence uh, and, and the lack of respect for human life that it implies. But it's always important, and I'm certain you know this as well, that minority neighborhoods and minorities in general are not monolithic. They do not all have the same opinions and perspectives. As James Foreman told us when his uh, book, Locking Up Our Own Crime and Punishment in Black America, came out back in 2018, there are many African Americans who, despite what the City Journal's Heather McDonald claims, are supporters of the police and indeed want more police in their communities to fight violent crime. That said, even for those who do want more police in their neighborhoods, do they want a heavily armed force of strangers in unmarked cars and not in uniform fighting crime? Even for those who support police, do they support this kind of increased use of force, specialized, militarized police units? Um, that's an interesting question, and and you know you're absolutely right that there is no monolithic opinion on this in 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 any community um, across this country. Um, I think there is um, there is also uh, a question here of um, alternatives, right? If people don't think that there are alternatives uh, to police. Let's say first responders, emergency first responders, who are equipped to respond to the kinds of situations. Um, that police are called to respond to now, um, often to uh, to violent effect, right? In, in, in those cases, there's often um, an additional act of violence that occurs when the police uh, get to the scene. Um, or there is the the structural violence that will come from, um, from a family being torn apart by the criminal justice system um, that comes after the point of arrest. But you know there is there is a real crisis in in American life where you know violence is everywhere, um, and it's not just police violence by any means. But um, I think police violence is distinctive, um, and the kind of police violence we're seeing is distinctive because it comes with this guarantee of qualified immunity. It comes with this guarantee of impunity. Um, you know, if you at least at least in um, in any kind of effective. Uh, society, there are other ways to control, um, you know, to control violent behavior um, than more violent behavior. There are other ways to control violent behavior than, um, you know, pulling a gun or or um, coming down on somebody with a baton or a taser um, or, or you know, in the future with a killer robot, um, which has actually already happened um, in, in one instance in the United States in Dallas in 2014. Um, so, uh, there is, there's a question here around, um, where does, where does the, the line, uh, get drawn, uh, who, who counts, whose life is worthy. It's, it's often the same people who are 
affected by by violence that is um you know that is uh, coming from uh gangs and cartels is the same population that is being affected by violence by the police uh the same people whose lives are undervalued so that suggests it is not um a question of um you know just just the police uh as a as as a solution uh and it's not just the police um, that are that are causing all the violence in U.S. society. It's also structural questions. It's also um, planned abandonment and and you know lots of issues that come up when you don't invest in people. So um, I think the the thing that that is lost in the debate though is these are uh, these are representatives of the U.S. government. These are uh, these are you know delegated, deployed um, officers of the law officers of the peace, as they're sometimes called. And yet they are among the main perpetrators of violence um, in the world among police forces. Um, they account for over 13% of police deaths worldwide, despite the U.S. accounting for only 4% of the population. That's a really striking um, fact and, and one that we should take seriously. We're killing people, not just... Um, in, in you know the guise of violent crime, but but violent crime is happening on the part of the U.S. government, and we're we're killing people at a disproportionate rate, wildly disproportionate to our share of the world's population. You write of the police killing of Breonna Taylor in Louisville three months after the rollout of the Place-Based Investigations Squad, their special crime unit, would play an integral part in the police raid that took the life of Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old black woman, an emergency room technician at the University of Louisville, accused of no crime, but executed anyway by three Louisville police officers standing in the hallway of her own home. Officers from the PBI squad had requested and obtained five search warrants with no-knock clauses, including one from Ms. Taylor, acting on what would later they would call a gut feeling. Yet you point out that the problem, the, the whole issue seems to be that the planning was poor and the execution of this plan was poor. What explains this specialized, trained use of force, militarized, special police unit having poor execution and planning. You would think that if they're so specialized that they would be experts at this and therefore this kind of thing wouldn't happen. Why? What explains to you poor planning and poor execution by a specialized police unit that is specialized for this purpose? Well, the kinds of specialized knowledge um, that that they received, the kinds of uh, specialized training that they received um, you know, we're obviously part of part of the picture. Um, it's not just that they deviated uh, from uh, the thing that they were supposed to do. They made some mistakes and mistakes were made. This is part of their training. This is what they're trained for, um, as you're emphasizing. And so officers from this place-based investigation squad, um, based on this hotspot model of policing with very little science, actual science behind it, um, went ahead and got five search warrants, um, each of which had a no-knock clause, so they could do no-knock raids, um, including one for Breonna Taylor. Um, and um, and the basis for this was was basically a hunch. Uh, one of them later admitted, one of the officers later admitted to acting on a gut feeling, quote unquote. Um, and they they were actually looking at um, 
you know, uh, uh, an ex uh, boyfriend of Brianna's and they thought they could get to that ex boyfriend by um, by way of Brianna Taylor. And um, and, uh, you know, they 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 took her life for it. It took the the authorities, um, you know, years to admit this, but um, but they have basically admitted to it. Why do cities reward those police with violent backgrounds promotions? You write that today's Atlanta's Titans have replaced the Red Dogs in Georgia of old, while the very police executive who ran the old unit, Sirlin C.J. Davis, was made commissioner of the Memphis Police Department. The city of Memphis has also sought guidance from Ray Kelly, who was New York police commissioner during a particularly trigger-happy period in that department's history, including the death of Sean Bell. Why do cities reward those police with violent backgrounds with promotions? That's a very good question, Jack. Um, and, uh, you know, one that perhaps those cities that uh, that did so would be best best uh, position to answer. But um, I think, you know, one of one of the, the factors here is the incentive structure, um, which, you know, from the top down and from the bottom up, uh, if you look at law enforcement, the incentive structure is weighted heavily uh, towards uh, a culture that rewards the use of force, that rewards aggressive um, aggressive action against civilians. And um, you know, if you can show results, um, that's that's what you get rewarded for. And those results can come in the form of of crime rates, or they can come in the form of a body count. Um, and there, you know, Ray Kelly has a body count, for example. You know, the C.J. Davis has a body count. There, are, there are actual numbers, you know, that that accompany these people will uh, will maybe haunt them for the rest of their lives of of people who were uh, gunned down by the by the Red Dogs um, in Atlanta, or people who were gunned down by the Street Crimes Unit um, under Ray Kelly in New York City. And um, you know, they in in other conflict zones, they they call it collateral damage. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily get rewarded, but it doesn't necessarily get punished. In police departments, uh, those police executives who have uh, shown themselves to be the most aggressive or the most oriented towards um, what they call a tough on crime approach, uh, whatever the cost to the communities that they are uh, entrusted to protect, they are the ones who get promoted. They're the ones who get um, uh, the the big um, payouts for for big speeches. They there's a sliding door, uh, you know, a sliding door between, um, you know, between the private sector and the public sector. And um, you know, Rudy Giuliani was made his career on on uh, policing New York, uh, just like you know his police commissioners. He he was uh, regaled with with rewards for it for a long time. Um, until we found out who, you know, who we were truly dealing with. Just a couple more questions for you. You write that zooming out, we can see this kind of predatory policing for the national crisis it really is. In recent decades, according to the definitive study that you were mentioning earlier, published in The Lancet, more than 30,000 American citizens have lost their lives in encounters with law enforcement over the last few decades, a figure perhaps best compared to the rates of collateral damage in war-torn places like Ukraine, Gaza, Yemen, or the Sahel. And uh, whatever we call the them, elite units like the Scorpions have played a leading role in that carnage. From their basic training to their advanced technology and heavy weaponry, 
they are increasingly cast as the protagonists in what has become America's homeland theater of war, producing content of spectacular uh, violence as the country's war machine turns inward. So if there was a vote, and sadly there won't be, on whether to continue these special units and the public decided to prohibit such units, would the government actually abide by such a demand from the public? After all, last November, we were speaking with historian Austin McCoy, no relation to the historian Alfred McCoy, who accurately predicted the war on terror would come home and be waged by police against Americans. Austin was on to talk about the Baffler Magazine article after Floyd, if you can't rein in the police... You can't have democracy. In that writing and during our conversation, Austin said, the alliance of local government and the police is unassailable. So if the public wanted to defund the police, as they have voted that they have in many circumstances, here in Chicago, we voted Lori Lightfoot into office because she said that she wanted to defund the police and uh, not have this police training center. Instead, she funded the police far more than they were being funded, hired more police, and expanded that police training center, to what extent do you think the government would abide by the demands of the public? Or are government and police relations so unassailable that they're invulnerable to the demands of the voting public? Uh, yeah, another apt question. Um, I think, you know, democracy uh, Democracy is, is really um, not at the center of the policing debate, but it should be. Um, because when you have uh, even even one agency, let alone thousands of agencies around the country, but you know even one agency that is insulated from uh, from democratic uh, controls from from civilian control um, that can basically do what it wants, can stage a slowdown, a speed up, um, can um, engage in in lethal violence with no consequences in many places. Um, when you have that kind of, um, you know, insulation from the public, um, there's very little left to check behavior, uh, you know, by by the police or by the the um, elected governments that are supposed to be overseeing them. And in a lot of places, you have oversight agencies um, which are completely disempowered, which are completely uh, without teeth, and um, and you know, you don't have any effective oversight. By civilian agencies um, in in any city that I know of um, at the moment, there was um, I think there was a response to uh, to the mass uh, protests in 2014 um, and to the democratic exercise of people's rights to to assemble in in very great numbers. Um, even though that was that was met with police brutality in many places, I think that did have an effect um, where you saw. A push by some uh, elected officials, at least for a time, in response to popular pressure, uh, for demilitarizing the police, and that did happen for for about two years. Um, it is now back, you know, back. There's been a backsliding since then um, under both Trump and Biden. Um, you you had votes to uh, to disband uh, out of control police units. Um, the you know the ramparts uh, scandal led to the disbanding of of some of the units in LA. Um, Palantir's contract, as I mentioned, uh, was severed, um, and in you know in New York City, you've seen um, quite a bit of pushback against these these so-called anti-crime units to the point that they were um, dissolved in 2020, only to be brought back by Mayor Eric Adams uh, in recent days. 
So, you know, these are these are basically, you know, political battles that can be won or lost. And um, unfortunately, at the moment, the, the kinds of political coalitions and the constellations of power that you see defending the police are much more powerful, uh, stronger and better financed than those uh, militating uh, to to limit that power. But, uh, you know, if, if democracy is to survive um, and if democracy, let alone uh, if democracy and democratic rights are to be fully respected and expanded, um, you're going to have to see uh, effective constraints on the police and that will only come from civil society uh, really forcing the issue. That's a perfect setup for our final question. We've been speaking with award-winning writer Dr. Michael Goldwartowski, who wrote the Tom Dispatch article, Welcome to the Predator State, Where the Scorpions on the Corner Just Might Kill You. He's currently working on a book on fascism and anti-fascism in America. He is the author of the 2015 book, The Occupiers, The Making of the 99%, his new book, No Sanctuary, Mass Deportation, and The Unmaking of the Sanctuary City, 1980 to 2020, is forthcoming. You can find out more about Michael at M gould with wartofsky.com follow michael on twitter at m gould wartofsky as well one last question for you and as we do with all of our guests michael i promise it's the question from hell the question we hate to ask you may hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response considering the fact that we have bipartisan support for the pentagon the military industrial complex to arm Police, considering the fact that we have a greater and greater, growing greater and greater dependence upon the defense industry for the American economy. And uh, keeping in mind that this week we spoke with Siddharth Kara about uh, his book Red Cobalt and mining in the Congo and how it still resembles mining from 500 years ago that is deadly for the people who live there. Carrie Lee Merritt was on the show and she was saying that she has hope for the future because she says the younger generation, people in their late teens, early 20s, are becoming incredibly politically active. Mariam Kaba, she quotes saying that she has hope for the future despite the work that she does working with people who are incarcerated. So... Michael, do you have hope that the situation with these specialized militarized police forces will change, that we will roll back and take away the military military materiel from the police and make the police focus not on violence, but on mitigation? How much hope do you have for police reform moving forward? Well, hope, as Marion Kaba says, um, is a discipline. You have to kind of work at it. You have to work towards it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there is basis for hope um, in our in our history. Um, if you look at the origins of uh, many police departments across the country, especially in the South um, and the West, uh, they were in slave patrols. Uh, there was a time when slavery seemed like it, it was never going to, to be abolished. Uh, there was a time, uh, you know, when when racial terror uh, against um, black and brown people was uh, at such a level that, um, you know, thousands of lynchings were happening every year. Um, it didn't seem like that was going to, to stop anytime. Um, and, you know, there was also uh, a time when, uh, you know, the, the violence uh, that we see um, you know, around the world was was at a greater pitch, including in the in the two thousands, um, with direct U.S. military intervention, um, and you know that 
that seemed like it would go on forever, and yet the occupations um, of of Iraq and Afghanistan were ended. Um, so I think you know there is uh, there is a, a basis for hope. There is a basis for the discipline of hope, um, and um, you know even even though we're seeing uh, this kind of uh, um, this kind of mass death, we also you know are seeing. Um, the exercise of the life impulse and, and you know, there's a, a force that is militating for life um, in our society um, and uh, for black lives in particular um, and against the, the spectacular violence that we're seeing uh, both here and around the world. Michael, thank you so much for being on our show and please stay in touch with us when your new book comes out. We would love to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for being with us today. This was really fantastic writing over at Tom Dispatch. Thanks. Thanks again. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Take care. Look around. This is hell. If what you just heard from Michael, that scared the hell out of you while making you feel like you actually learned something or you realize that, yes, this really is hell, and we better do something about it before it's too late, which it may be already, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after. Patreon.com slash this is hell or just go to this is hell.com and click on support. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is how do you identify yourself? Okay. Over Facebook way, we've got Ben G who answers Dingus Khan. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Kind of thinking of Alfred E. Newman on a throne of skulls there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's an image. Thanks. Yeah, cool. I hope that doesn't show up in my <laughs> dreams tonight. <laughs> looking right at you. Visiting that Czech temple where they have all those skulls and bones. Yeah. yeah. Church. Creepy. Alfred. Uh, we got Kim G who answers, hey, it's me. <laughs> what they say in the mirror there. I say that when I go to the back door and knock on the door and my girlfriend says, who's there? And yeah. I say, it's me. And that's not a very good thing to do, but it's a great way to break into somebody's home to say, hey, it's me. Boy, some people figured that out in this yes. neighborhood around yes, they here. Have. The bar here. Yeah. Uh, we got Fabio L. They, identif- they identify as a problem. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. I like that. Uh, let's see. We got one more at Twitter where Carlos Marx says, <laughs> I identify as this week's question from Hell winner. <laughs> that's that's gotcha. that's pretty good. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, they win their choice of This Is Hell stuff that you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can still leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we have to have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Dan, again, what's Jeff up to during this week's Moment of Truth? Well, in just a moment, Jeff is going to conquer the world with a philosophy of radical underachievement. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, which is increasing greatly, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell become a subscriber to this is hell and get exclusive access to our weekly patreon podcast which streams weekly and is podcast shortly after at the same place on this week's patreon this is hell will be all about hope and get this happiness will we be hijacked by some annoyingly optimistic motivational speaker 
Not that I know of, but we talked so much, including just now with Michael, about hope this week. Siddharth Kara has hope that something will be done about the deadly working conditions of Congo's cobalt mines, despite seemingly being stuck in a colonial, even enslaved past that has not changed for 500 years. Carrie Lee Merritt talked about her hope for the future because of the youth movement for her. She thinks it's so incredibly inspirational. She even quotes past guest Mariam Kaba on her hope, even though Mariam works, as Carrie described, in the darkest corners of America, advocating for the freedom of those locked away in jail cells. How the hell can all these people who are far better human beings than I am, far more knowledgeable human beings than I am, who have been witness to far worse cruelties than I have ever seen, how can they have hope and I can't? I want to have hope. So what the hell's wrong with me? Maybe it's because I'm not happy. But as Carrie pointed out yesterday, we need to recognize when we are happy, and that's exactly what I did following yesterday's show, and I hate to say this, but recognizing when you are happy actually feels pretty damn good. Also on Patreon, we are starting a new three-part series of interviews on another war that is celebrating its anniversary soon, and I'll be really curious how the media handles this anniversary as in contrast to the way that they handled the one-year anniversary of the war with between uh, Ukraine and Russia. In fact, many media outlets recognize that anniversary, and I'm just wondering, what the hell will they be doing? Because in four days, March 19th, that is the 20th anniversary of the invasion and occupation of Iraq. And that, uh, that invasion and occupation, which yet again was unnecessary, a war that we are lied into and led to countless deaths and yet another U.S. military defeat, avoidable countless deaths. The U.S. is on a really long losing streak, not having won a war since World War II, aside from taking on the military might of Granada. I mean, sure, the U.S. has been successful at propping up military coups that overthrow democratically elected leaders and replace them with tyrannical dictators who abuse their people so U.S. corporations can profit. But winning a war is not something the U.S. does anymore. But damn, we are really good at overthrowing democracies. So we're starting our three-week series commemorating the beginning of the invasion and occupation of Iraq by playing a March 15th, 2003 conversation, just four days before the invasion, a conversation we had with the Institute for Policy Studies' Sarah Anderson, who co-authored the then-just-posted article, Coalition of the Coerced. But the only way you can hear me be filled with hope and happiness, dare I say happiness, while acknowledging the failure of the completely avoidable war in Iraq is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. That's patreon.com slash this is hell. Please show your support as we are completely 100% listener supported. Coming up, Jeff, with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This is Hell live from Hangover Country. This is hell. And Dan, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. A message from the Socialist Leisure Party. Don't! 
The philosophy of my obscure political party, the Socialist Leisure Party, is being proven right again. It's been proven righter and righter with each passing day. The Socialist Leisure Party must become the dominant political party in the world, and I'll be damned if I'm going to get off my ass to do anything to make that happen. You might ask, what is the Socialist Leisure Party's philosophy? Jesus Christ, really? You can't just figure it out. Do I really have to? All right. The SLP's philosophy of history is that history's real winners, history's real winners are the ones who achieved the least, the ones who got the most sleep, the ones who somehow worked it out to secure the most time to do nothing but stare off into space or make brownies with the kids, the ones who stopped to listen while the grasshopper fiddled, the gold brickers down at the pool hall. But what about the SLP's flat form of universal luxury communism, you might ask? How can luxury be produced or maintained if no one's willing to work? And how is the abundance of the economy of abundance visualized by the Socialist Leisure Party supposed to come about if no one's going to work to grow and accumulate the surplus for the public? These are great questions, but I'm tired. The easy answer, and the SLP is all about easy answers, is that to create luxury requires time which is itself a luxury, a luxurious building made for the public to enjoy, displays the time required to create every part of it, and it's not created under the whip of the efficiency supervisor screaming, time is money, you lazy drones! It's created by the artists and craftspeople who eat healthy, good food. They live comfortable, dignified lives. When they look in the mirror, they can respect themselves. We currently grow and process more food than we eat because of our emphasis on getting the most material out of every action we take. The uber-wealthy pay a little extra for higher quality goods, but even they waste about half their oversized portion of global food wealth. It's not a secret that unequal distribution of everything, whether necessities or luxuries, is the lingering issue creating most of the intraspecies problems among human beings. Our inability to divide our living and agricultural spaces fairly or wisely also causes problems between species. It's not that efficiency shouldn't be a high priority. It's that misplaced efficiency shouldn't be a higher priority than alleviating hunger and misery and environmental destruction and the uglification of the world. A lot of our objection to work is that it seems pointless. The work available to most of us benefits those who want to control us more than it benefits us or the people in need of our help, even if it's our job to help those people. Have you heard about these long-termists who are supposedly taking the long view of humanity's future in a kind of steroid-enhanced utilitarianism? Elon Musk, our favorite tech dingleberry, is one of them. Long-termists have this vision that the utopian end goal for humanity is to populate with human intelligence-bearing entities in sustainable living situations all the stars in the galaxy. This they call humanity's full potential or greatest potential or ultimate potential or some BS. To aim at the goal of this ultimate destiny, there might come a time when triage has to be performed on humanity, especially in the decades immediately to come. If predictions about the, the climate crisis cause sea level rise and mass migrations, uh, if those predictions come true, rather than pause the output of technical ingenuity to save aspects of the world necessary to human civilization in, say, the global south, we might have to allow the people who can't get out of the way of disaster to simply be sacrificed.
I mean, in order to keep progress toward our optimal future of comfortably, miraculously interstellar transportation and accommodations on track, we may just have to drown or even more efficiently exterminate half of humanity. It's unpleasantly obvious who the theorists behind such a social engineering vision assume will be making these tough, logical, mathematical decisions that must be made. It'll be fragile, childlike, vain egos like our doofus of the decade, Elon Musk, who imagine themselves superior to run-of-the-mill humans. What other kind of a-hole would arrogate to themselves the godlike fiat power not only to envision the preferred destiny of the human species from now until the heat death of the universe, but to decide which lives are obstructing such progress to the point that they must be allowed to perish or be jettisoned as ballast. It is for this reason that one of the main planks in the Socialist Leisure Party platform is disobeying the dictates of finance efficiency and visionary capitalism. Capitalism is institutional unfairness when it's simply not institutional cruelty. That the so-called captains of industry are so swollen-headed as to demand that the public recognize and acknowledge them is a great advantage to the SLP and like-minded citizens of the world. We can use the woo <clears throat> we can use the win <clears throat> we can use the whims of these dung for brains, self-appointed thought leaders as a metric. We use our consciences as weather vanes when Elon's or Teal's or Bezos's winds start blowing. Whichever way they're blowing, we chart a course in the opposite direction. Yeah, there's a lot of blowing. World leadership wants to blow us all in the direction of obedience to the market or prevailing social judgments of the uber-wealthy and uber-vain under penalty of homelessness and starvation. The winds of hard authoritarianism, like the kind advocated by, say, Erdogan or Orban, or General Mike Flynn, or the winds of softer authoritarianism, like the ones sweeping in from Davos, or the White House, or the World Bank, or the Federal Reserve, must be defied. It's all a big old wind. Going against the big wind sounds difficult, and it is. That's why it's called resistance. If the COVID-19 plague and lockdown taught the SLP anything, it's that the right-wing, unempathetic captains of extraction and their mouth-flapping toadies were fine sacrificing the lives of millions of vulnerable people in favor of the needs of capital. Those who complained most about taking the virus seriously whined about being inconvenienced or uncomfortable when forced to take measures to be careful. Some complained about their small businesses being hurt but were infuriated by any suggestion that the government might make their own or anyone's lives easier by providing material support. Many threatened violence and brought weapons into legislatures to intimidate, claiming they had the constitutional right to do so. And the right-wing mouth flappers egged them on with torrents of demagogic vocal slurry. And this, for the relative, and this for the relatively minor economic and behavioral inconveniences of trying to keep the elderly, the working poor, and ultimately everyone from contracting an unknown but sometimes fatal virus. Imagine what horrifically violent tantrums will be thrown when food and shelter must be meted out to climate refugees. We don't even have to imagine. We've seen it happen already. We saw the violence visited on the migrants. Yes, even the white ones during the Great Depression. We saw the vicious ungenerousness of those with calculated interests in profit. But contrarily, we also saw resistance to the selfish utilitarianism of the age. We need that resistance now. We need to say no. 
Our time and our motivations are our own. It's our communities that deserve our loyalty, not the owners of the worldwide franchises, commandeering houses and businesses and public space. We need a general strike for the good of the air and water and wildlife and domestic life. We need to put our feet down or up and say, not today, we're taking a global health day or week or month or year or decade. This land is ours and the food that will grow on it will be ours. It won't be made into corn syrup or corn flakes or corn plastic to sell 5,000 or 12,000 miles away. We're not making your stupid hyperloop or you're working in your fulfillment gulags or your whitewashed history indoctrination camps, whatever you're selling, we ain't buying it, and we sure as hell ain't helping you manufacture, sell, or transport it. A message from the Socialist Leisure Party. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. All right, Hefe, stay beautiful. We're up against the clock. I'm trying to make oh, it that's exactly nasty. 240 minutes this week. All right. Do it. Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell, and are there any more answers from our listeners? This week's question from Hell was, how do you identify yourself? We have one response in under the wire from old friend EatFart69, who posts a YouTube link to a song by the urinals entitled I'm a Bug. So That's from 1979. Never heard of the urinals before. How you about you? No, never have. Want me to play it real quick? We're up against the clock. <laughs> up against the clock. It looks good. <laughs> the answers I liked most were at Patreon, uh, Erica XE saying a complex series of tattoos so that I can reconstruct my identity enough to locate my wife's killer before my memory resets, which is a great reference to Memento. Andrew saying the monkey brain in the monkey suit over there, officer. Uh, Mike saying, kneeling in the street with my hands over my head, screaming, don't shoot, officer. My driver's license is in my back pocket. Tim C. saying he identifies as humanish and through a rotating list of aliases stolen from Charles Bukowski poems. Dean saying, a relatively happy doomer. Uh, let's see. SLS, as your daddy. No whack wolf saying, like any other magic mushroom, you want to examine the gills and take a spore print. Fabio saying, I identify as a problem. Ben saying, Dingus Khan, which was great. Carlos Mark saying, I identify myself as this week's question from Hell Winner. Got ya. Any particular ones that you like there, Dan? Survey says, Dingus. <laughs> Dingus Khan. <laughs> All right. It's good. Ben, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. All you have to do is send us an email to chuck at thisishell.com telling us what your mailing address is and the piece of This Is Hell merchandise, and you will have that mailed to you post haste. My answer to this week's question from hell is how do you identify yourself the same way I do during each and every broadcast, podcast, and live stream of This Is Hell, and that is. I am your bitter, blind, broke, Gaptooth Radio Show host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's This Is Hell is Dan Hill. Thank you, Dan, for producing. Dan, who do we have booked for next week? Well, next week we have, at the very least, historian Robin D.G. Kelly, who returns to This Is Hell to talk about his contribution to Carrie Lee Merritt's co-edited collection, Afterlife, a collection a collective history of loss and redemption in pandemic America. Robin's essay is titled Buried History, the Death uh, and American... 
The Death and Life of Donald S. Kelly. Robin is the Gary B. Nash Professor of American History at UCLA. Carrie Lee's co-editors to Afterlife are Ray Lynn Barnes and Yohuru Williams. Thanks to this week's producers, Will Ippen, Lindsey Gorey, Dan Hill. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another Moment of Truth. To Ronaldo Magaldi for This Week in Rotten History. Sebastian Vupper for another Past Inside the Present. To Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Humiston. Just because. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash hell when I will be full of hope and happiness, despite the fact that we are starting a new three-week series of interviews on the totally unnecessary war in Iraq that took place at that time, at the beginning of the war in Iraq. Hang out with me, members of this is the This Is Hell crew and others This Is Hell listeners for Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think. Will Ippen will be joining us this evening, so it's a good chance to meet our newest producer. Join us at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood which has returned to its regular Wednesday evening time, beginning around 6 and going until around 10. Drop by, join us, and if you do, maybe I'll give you a book if you remind me. And if you are free Sunday afternoon from 4 to 8 p.m., check out Tuk Tuk's On Devon, a new art installation. Join us for the official unveiling on Sunday, March 19th from 4 to 8 p.m. A tuk-tuk is basically one of those three-wheeled motorized cabs that you see in South Asia a lot. There's going to be tons of them along Devon Avenue through September, but the opening is on Sunday, March 19th from 4 to 8 p.m. Also, uh, make sure you go to uh, send me an... Request to join our group, Welcome to the Hellhole, and then you can vote on who we should have as our guest throughout this month. Also, finally, show your support for Dan's friend Alvin. Go to Cash App 999TYB and show your support for Alvin. Thanks, Chuck. He's had such a hard six months. He got robbed. He got mugged. They're turning off his electricity. He's just trying to get an Uber to the hospital this morning because he thinks he has COVID. Oh, jeez. Yep. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>